0: Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Judaizers, those believers who had come from a Jewish background, but who had trouble leaving behind the legalistic rules of the Old Testament, thought themselves superior to others simply because they were blood descendants of Abraham. However, Paul pointed out in chapter 3 of Galatians that Abraham had believed God's promise, and it was that belief, That was credited to him as righteousness. In truth, Abraham is the father of all who believe, whether they come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. Furthermore, God's favor had been poured out on Abraham before the law was ever given to Moses, which really was another proof that we receive God's promises by faith and not because we've earned them by our behavior. In fact, the Mosaic law was impossible for anyone to keep. Even Moses had not obeyed God faultlessly and, in fact, he had not been allowed to enter the promised land because of disobedience. The implication to the Jews was that if their hero, Moses, had not fully obeyed God, how would they be able to do it? Uh, Paul also stated that the reason that the law had been given at all was to teach us what sin is and to help us understand that not only are we not as good as perhaps we first imagined, but also that we desperately need a saviour. The law had been rather like our tutor or guardian that was to lead us to Christ. Paul expands on this picture of the law being our guardian for a time in the next chapter. What I'm saying is this, as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So Paul reminds his listeners that in that culture, underage children were really no different to slaves. In that, they had to obey their father's regulations and they had no real rights of their own. Although a son may have been heir to his father's estate, if he was under age, he could not act with any power or authority, and he could make no legal decisions on his own. He was subject to the guardians and trustees that his father had placed over him for whatever period the father had set. Paul states in verse 3 that in the same way, we too are slaves, having to obey the laws over us until the time set by our heavenly Father. But when that time came, According to our Heavenly Father's plan, he sent his Son. God's Son was born in the same way that all of us were born. He was born of a woman. He was born subject to the law, just like the rest of mankind. However, Jesus did not sin as we do. He lived a perfect life. Yet, through no fault of his own, he was sent to the cross, and there he bore all of God's wrath as he took our punishment on himself. Remember how, according to Matthew 27 and Mark 15, just before Jesus breathed his last, he cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would not have to be. He came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because he paid the price, we have been set free. And Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Through Christ we inherit eternal life and unbroken fellowship with God our Father. We are made his sons and daughters and his heirs in a totally new relationship of intimacy with the Father. That kind of personal relationship with God really wasn't possible under the law. Jews could not even speak the name of God. It was so holy to them. And yet, those who, through faith in Christ, have received the Holy Spirit are not only able to call him Father, they're able to call him Abba Father, which was another way of saying Daddy. What a wonderful, loving relationship we're now able to have with God. And it's all because of Christ in whom we have come to maturity in the things of God. Paul was very concerned for the Galatians that they not turn their backs on their wonderful new status as children of God. So he says to them in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Before coming to hear the gospel and having faith in Christ, the Galatians had not known God and that made them slaves to other things. They'd been shackled to a form of religion that could not free them from their fallen natures. But now that they had come to know God and the freedom that grace brought, Paul was shocked that they were so willing to turn back to what they had before. Forsaking relationship with God instead for the rules and regulations of the law that were never meant to bring life. He firmly confronted them, asking if they wanted to be enslaved once more by the things that had once bound them. You see, a religion, based on what you do, is powerless to really bring transformation. Yes, it can show you where you're at fault. Yes, it can make you feel guilty, but it can't help you to be fully forgiven. It can't help you to avoid giving in to temptation in the future either. Paul mentions a specific example of the Judaizers' teaching here and he speaks of the observation of special days and months and seasons of the years to help his readers understand that those kind of rules can't change you, but the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit can. Paul was anxious that all of his efforts had been wasted on them, for if they turned away from Christ, they would be no better off than they had been before they even knew him. He didn't want that to be the case because he had a very special bond with these believers. And so he says in verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Calling them his brothers and sisters, he now makes a personal appeal to them to become like me. Paul had abandoned the Jewish traditions he'd grown up with, and he had become Gentile in his approach to God. And so he didn't want them to think of taking on Judaism as if that would help them now. It wouldn't, and he of all people knew that. He reminds them of their deep friendship and how they'd treated him in the past, for apparently when he had first come to them, He'd been suffering from an illness. Now, we're not told what had made him so unwell, but his letter to the church at Corinth tells us that Paul suffered from an affliction that was uh, with him for some time. In fact, he'd often asked God to take it away. Some people wonder if the problem wasn't perhaps something to do with his eyes because of what he says there in verse 15, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And people think that perhaps this was a residual problem that he had after having been blinded by the light on the road to Damascus all those years before. We don't know what we do know is that God can use even the most difficult circumstances for good because it was Paul's illness that brought him to preach the gospel in their area in the first place. Apparently, Paul's sickness had been a trial to them, but in spite of that, they had opened, they had welcomed him with open arms, not only as God's messenger, but almost as if he was Jesus himself. But since then, something had changed. Now, because of the false teachers' lies, they were thinking of him more as an enemy, even though he was only telling them the truth about salvation that God offers in Christ alone. Paul points out the false teachers had actually had underhanded motives. Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I'm perplexed about you. So though they claimed they wanted people to follow the law of Moses, what the false teachers really wanted to do was to separate people from Paul and to increase their own following. Paul urged his readers to understand that zeal really isn't the problem. It's good to serve God passionately, but we must be sure that we are serving God and not just men. And we've got to be careful not to fall into the trap of pride that legalism usually brings. When Paul calls them his dear children, the word he uses in the text really means my dear little children. And there's such love and compassion in his voice as he expresses his concern for them. In fact, he likened the intense pain and anguish he felt For them to the pains of childbirth, saying that he would be in such distress until Christ was really fully developed in them. In other words, until they reached maturity in the faith. Paul knew that his tone seemed harsh, but he wanted them to know that he spoke the way he did because he was really worried about them. Desperate for them to understand just how serious it was to accept a doctrine of works over a doctrine of grace, Paul decided to illustrate what he meant by returning to the story of Abraham. And you might remember last week that Abraham was the father of all who lived by faith. And he and his wife, Sarah, had been promised a son through whom they would have many descendants. But God's promise took a very long time to be fulfilled. And after Abraham and Sarah had waited 25 years without having the child, they began to wonder if there wasn't something that they could perhaps do to hurry along the fulfillment of that promise. It was common in their culture that should a woman struggle to provide an heir for her husband, her slave should be given to that man to bear a child on the wife's behalf. And that's exactly what happened. Sarah gave her maid Hagar to Abraham and Hagar quickly fell pregnant and gave birth to a son who was called Ishmael. However, God's promise had declared that the chosen son would come from Sarah's own womb. And in due course, Sarah did conceive and Isaac, the son of promise, was born. Many of these historical events in Scripture are also filled with important symbolism. And Paul uses the story of these two women and their two sons to illustrate the point that he's making about law and grace. He addresses the Judaizers directly, saying... Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So, Abraham's son by Hagar was born according to the flesh. Hagar had been united with Abraham according to human tradition. It was a human solution to the problem that didn't depend on God's word or upon God's promise. The only possible offspring from such an arrangement was really another slave. It doesn't mean that Ishmael, though, was less in God's eyes, for God loves every human being who comes into the world through whatever circumstance and from whatever intent. But it does mean that Ishmael was not the child of promise; he could not—he um, could only be a slave like his mother. But by contrast, Sarah's son Isaac was born free according to the grace and promise of God. He was indeed the child through whom God's blessing would come to all nations. Paul clearly states that he's not really talking about Abraham's actual family here, but rather that the two women, Hagar and Sarah, are symbols of something far greater. Hagar symbolizes the old covenant of the law given at Mount Sinai, which can only produce slaves. And Sarah symbolizes the new covenant of grace, which produces those whom God calls his children. Paul continues the contrast in verse 25. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Scripture refers to two different Jerusalems. One is the physical earthly city in the Middle East that's sacred to the Jews even today. The other is the heavenly Jerusalem from which God himself reigns. The earthly Jerusalem and the earthly religion with the law of Moses corresponds to Hagar, the slave woman whose children would always be enslaved. The law cannot change those who belong to it and follow it. But those who are born according to the promise of God, pictured here by the new heavenly Jerusalem, enjoy the glorious freedom of being called the children of God. As Christ followers, we belong to that heavenly Jerusalem. And just as the descendants of Sarah were, we are the children of the promise given to Abraham. Paul clearly states this in verse 27 and 28. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. There is, however, another element to this that we need to notice. If you're familiar with the story of Sarah and Hagar, you will remember that Hagar, after she had conceived and borne Abraham a son, began to persecute the still barren Sarah, taunting her publicly and shaming her. Unfortunately, the ill will between the two mothers actually spilled over into the sons, as we're going to see now in what Paul says in verse 29. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. As he grew up, Ishmael, the son born according to the flesh, and according to human traditions and human wisdom, began to oppress Isaac, the son who was born by the power of the Spirit. And Paul states that it was no different now. In fact, that was exactly what was going on in the situation in Galatia. These Judaizers who were held captive by their legalism were continuing to oppress those who were free because of their faith in Christ. The Genesis story didn't end happily for Hagar and her son. They were cast out of Abraham's dwelling place and left to wander in the wilderness. Though God blessed him and made a great nation of him as well, Ishmael would never share in Isaac's inheritance. And Paul's inference was that those false teachers who promoted following the law of Moses would be ultimately cast out of God's presence as well. They would have no inheritance in the promise of God because they had in fact rejected Christ, who was their only means of salvation. But Paul hopes for better, and he doesn't want to end without an encouragement. And so he reminds his friends again in verse 31, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. His words in this whole section of text may seem strange to us, but they do preserve one great truth. That those who cling to the law of Moses as the means of earning God's approval will always be slaves. But those who build their lives on the grace of God as shown in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will be forever free of the judgment and condemnation of the law. They will walk in freedom as the very children of God." Now, of course, that does not mean that Christians who put their faith in Christ can live as they please. Though free from the demands and condemnation of the law, we live by the power of God's indwelling love, transformed by his grace. We walk in obedience to his will because we love him, not because we fear his disapproval or his judgment. You know, it occurs to me that as we read these chapters in Galatians, we may think that legalism was a problem just for the early church and that we are no longer affected by it. However, even if we are not of a Jewish background seeking to follow the law of Moses, legalism can still creep into a believer's walk with the Lord. So I thought it might be good for us to consider What legalism is and the kind of things it results in, if only to understand what Paul was fighting against here, but also so as to protect our own hearts. Legalism says that we must follow God's laws and commandments in order to gain salvation. It overemphasizes good works as if they are what earns us God's approval. And so we find ourselves trying to earn God's mercy through what we do. Legalism leads us into bondage, bondage to rules, rather than into a real relationship with God as his beloved child. And this can happen very subtly even after we come to faith in Christ. From the moment I came to faith, if anyone had asked me how we were saved, I would have said that it is by grace alone. We cannot earn God's favor. But I once found myself slipping into a legalistic mindset without realizing it. After 10 years of infertility, I suddenly and happily had a wonderful baby, a son. But my alone time studying God's word went from hours a day down to minutes because I had this little one that I was caring for. And it wasn't that long before I began to feel that God was angry with me because my study time had so drastically decreased. Now, I'm the first person to tell you that time with God in his word is vital to our relationship with him. However, I came to realize that I was feeling this nagging sense of guilt because I actually thought that spending all that time with God earned me his favor. I was depending on that study time to feel accepted by God. I knew that works did not save me, but somehow I'd slipped into living as if my effort could make him love me more. In reality, I needed to remember that I already had his favor through Jesus Christ and that he could minister to me in other ways as a new mom, and he did. God loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on our behalf. God has unforced rhythms of grace that free us from what feels like a hamster wheel of activity to enjoy his presence, knowing that we are loved. Legalism not only affects our own walk with the Lord, but it can also damage our relationship to others. It almost always results in a judgmental attitude and constant comparing of ourselves to those around us, and to feelings of superiority and arrogance. While it often seems to be so spiritual, legalism has done untold damage to individual lives and church unity throughout the years. Most of all, legalism, though, undervalues Christ's sacrifice and the Holy Spirit's power to dramatically change a person's life, whether they followed the Old Testament law or not. What is the antidote to legalism then? The antidote to legalism is found in Christ alone, where we serve and obey the Lord out of a heart filled with love and gratitude to bring him glory for his great love for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Christ. Lord, yes, we obey him because we love him. However, we know that we obey out of the fact that we are accepted by you already. We are your children, and you are our Abba Father, our Daddy. Thank you so much for this new relationship that comes through the Holy Spirit, which the old law could never have provided. We just want to give you glory for that, Lord, and we pray that we would use our relationship with you to share with others this wonderful, transforming power of the Holy Spirit and of grace. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Bichelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.